Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Um, I also want to acknowledge that we're meeting on Wurundjeri uh, Woi Wurrung land and to extend uh, respect to Elders past and present of the Eora Nation. And I have to say, those are some of the best audience questions I think I've ever heard at a conference. So I'm so excited to be here with you. Oh, sorry, that's not me. So excited to be here with you and virtually with everyone who's tuning in today as well. Um, this is one of the best directives I think I've ever received. Think bigger, fix everything. Yes, I don't mind if I do, actually. That would be great. Uh, and I, I have to say that because these are the, the chapter headings in my book, Glimpses of Utopia. When I started writing the book, I realised I couldn't just talk about politics. I couldn't just talk about finance. I had to talk about land. I had to talk about care. I had to talk about all of these interconnected issues. And that's because, as Andrew has made so abundantly clear, we have a world of solutions out there. But what we lack is, it seems, a political imagination. And it seems that we lack a public discourse to actually make better choices or have better choices to choose from. Because right now we're making terrible choices for society and for the planet. And it's not because there isn't great ancient wisdom and traditions that we can draw from. It isn't that we don't have the energy and the care of people like you who are trying to take care of people and planet. And it's not because we don't have creativity and enthusiasm and energy in the community. It's because we're privileging the outcomes of a, of a tiny few over the, ex, over the experience and the life opportunities of the vast majority of us. Sorry. Uh, and, and we just need to have a better conversation. We need to tell stories and have better options to choose from. And we also need to challenge those assumptions, the deep code that we take as ju that's just the way things are because that's not just the way things are everywhere in the world right now. That's just not the way things have always been through history. And it's not the way things have to be. And we know that during a crisis, immediately policy turns on its head. Well, why can't we do that all the time? So what I'm gonna focus on, um, this is gonna be a bit of a whirlwind, I have to tell you. I'm gonna focus on how do we set better KPIs for society? How do we pay for a better world? And how can we reshape politics as a tool for social decision-making? Uh, and how do we actually get that active citizenship, that leadership at a local level that we need in order to get those better choices being made? Here goes. Uh, so this is, uh, this is my favourite, right? This is my favourite uh, news article from last year. Economy to recover strongly, but wages and jobs will not. I'm sorry, what's the economy again? <laughs> Who is the economy for? What is it about? And who's making these choices about what the economy is designed to serve? You know, we can actually, this isn't handed down to us on high. This isn't a natural law. These are choices that have been made by citizens through the politicians that we choose to represent us. Uh, and so we can have better choices. And something we do at the City of Sydney uh, is that we have this process... Oh, sorry, let me go back one step. 
what if, and, and I love this is where you ended, Andrew, actually, human flourishing. As what if human flourishing was the KPI for our society rather than jobs and growth? Now, there's this wonderful concept that Aristotle uh, writes about, which is eudaimonia. And it's this idea of living a life with purpose, a life where you feel fulfilled, where you're not just happy, you're also, you also have meaning and you're contributing back to your community. What if we put human flourishing as the core KPI of our society? And what if we made sure that all the money we spent and all the policies we enacted were in service of human flourishing? There are a few examples in the real world of where that's actually happening. So at the City of Sydney, we have this process which is about measuring what counts to people. And they're called the Community Wellbeing Indicators. This is a way that we measure people's trust in each other. So we started measuring this in 2007. In 2007, 45% of people in our local government area had trust in their neighbours. And today, it's 72%. Look, we've still got a way to go. But it means that we can now enact policies and support programs that are going to, that are designed to build trust and social bonds. We ask people questions about uh, the social connections they have, who they can turn to in a crisis. And we also look to ABS data. And that's what we use as our policy making tool and guide. At a larger level, New Zealand is doing this through their wellbeing budget, uh, which was introduced in 2019. Of course, there have been a few hiccups along the way. But the thing that's exciting about the wellbeing budget is that it, it makes politicians accountable for things that politicians usually don't want to be held to account on. Things like indicators of child poverty, soil erosion, water quality. And it actually makes those accountable and reportable at budget time. And it means if you're a minister and you want to get funding for your initiative, you actually have to show how your work will help achieve one of these goals under the wellbeing budget. Now, why would we want to do this? And what, is in, what could this potentially be in service of? One idea I'm really excited about is the idea of universal basic services. Now, this is something that's quite different to universal basic income. Who's heard of universal basic income, right? You probably heard it from like Elon Musk or one of those other really cool guys. Yeah, no, I'm not into it. There are some good things, there are some advocates for universal basic income. I've had some good arguments with people about it. My take on it is that it can lead to a more transactional type economy. Whereas I think with universal basic services, the idea is that we underwrite those services that we all need as humans. Things that enable social participation and that elevate and support people who are, who are socially excluded. It's about funding housing and healthcare, education, access to the internet, access to transport. And the research that's been done on this at University College London finds that you actually get a huge efficiency dividend when you invest in those foundational services as a society. Now, what's important here is that you're not investing in a sort of big grey kind of one size fits all approach to delivering those services. The idea is that you underwrite them at a central level, but the distribution and the provision of those services happens at a decentralised uh, and locally specific level. So the idea is in your community, for your need, you would form a service that could uh, achieve an outcome under universal basic services, and you would receive funding from a centralised source in order to deliver it. 
There are some other great approaches that could, could work in service of this. Um, there's an economist named Mariana Mazzucato who's done some fantastic work uh, around putting, uh, evaluating what we value and how we attribute value and reward value within the economy. And, you know, picking up on something else Andrew said, you know, it's not, with Mariana's approach, it's not really about redistribution of wealth, it's about pre-distribution of wealth. It's about working out who gets the resources and who gets Re, who, who has to repay the investment that is made by society in underwriting their success? You know, the, the, the financial sector, the technology sector, the property market, for example. So there is a way for us to provide those essentials of life and universal basic services is a really great way of looking at that. Of course, I had this voice in the back of my head the whole time I was writing the book, which was, that's really nice. Who's going to pay for it? Uh, and I have had that question quite a bit, I have to say. So what I think we need to do is have a big, full and frank conversation about taxation in this country. And I'm so glad that's one of the key uh, questions that we, we had here. And it's something I write about a lot in the book. Um, there are some approaches like X-tax, for example, which are about taxing resources rather than human capital. That's a, all about making it cheap to employ people to use their creativity and their, their human skills and making it expensive to use natural resources. But there are some other ways that we can reform the financial system using tax. And there's one that I love, which is called the Maid Marian tax. Now, the Maid Marian tax is about, as you would imagine, robbing the rich to pay the poor with a feminist focus. And this is an idea that has come from an incredible group called the Women's Budget Group in the UK and Scotland. What they found is that the austerity budgets, particularly in the UK, took from women at at something like two or three times the rate that it took from men. And that means it took from families, it took from local care, and it went into tax cuts for high income earners who, surprise, surprise, were all blokes. So if we had a feminist economy, a plan F is what the Women's Budget Group uh, put forward, they propose you could pay for this through the Maid Marian tax, which is a taxation on financial transactions. The amazing thing is, this tax already exists in a very unlikely location. Oh, Wall Street, right? In 1906, a financial transactions tax was introduced in New York City. And at the time, everyone went nuts. They said, that's the end of Wall Street. All of the business is going to flow away. Spoiler alert, that didn't happen. It, was, it actually operated absolutely fine and, and, a, and a whole lot of money went back into the New York economy until 1981. In 1981, it was the height of the, uh, the upcoming Reagan era. Everyone thought they were flush and they decided to re, uh, return all of those receipts from the um, financial transactions tax back to the people who, um, who were you know, paying them. And so until now, 100% of those taxes have been returned to the people paying them. And we're talking about a tiny payment. It's 0.005 of a percent of any transaction, particularly for transactions in derivatives, those high frequency trades that have led to a hyper-financialized economy, which alongside some of the other extractive forms of our economy are leading to really perverse and anti-social human outcomes. 
The amazing thing is right now in the New York Senate, there are two separate bills seeking to reintroduce this tax in New York. And it's estimated that they will generate about $20 billion a year that will go back into funding some of the services like the subway that have been hugely under-resourced over the past few years in New York. So it can be done. And then I want to talk about something that's even older than this financial transactions tax in New York. And that's Islamic finance. Now, the, the fundamental thing about Islamic finance is that it's about money serving a proper purpose. Now, you might have heard that in Sharia compliant or Islamic finance, uh, there is a prohibition on earning interest, for example. Have you heard about this? Right. It's not, though, just a prohibition on making money out of uh, unproductive activity or exploitative activity. There's also a very strong compulsion or requirement to actually make sure your money is doing good in the world. So it's not just about making sure your money isn't extracting, but that your money is giving back. And there's a huge market for this. Islamic finance is one of the fastest growing forms of finance. Uh, there are so many people around the world who are coming online into the Islamic finance sector. And yet, in Australia, not a single one of our Australian deposit-taking institutions actually caters for Islamic finance. And there's a huge benefit to society from Islamic finance. Uh, there's um, there's a, a, a few different um, kinds of funding that's available through Islamic finance. So at this time of year, there is a, an alms giving component called zakat that people of the Muslim faith provide. And it usually goes into charity services. But in Indonesia, that zakat is being used to fund projects that are in line with achieving the SDGs right now. There's another form of finance which is called sukuk, which is a sort of um, co-investment or public-private partnership or a, an alternative to bonds that's being used in Malaysia to fund a whole bunch of, uh, of renewable energy installations that might not have received financing in other ways. And this is an absolutely enormous part of the economy. I mean, it's, it's really not niche. 22% of the world's population are Muslim. And there's $2.5 trillion in Islamic finance funds under management today. So there's a huge source of finance there just waiting for us to, to learn from those practices and hopefully use some of that Islamic finance in ways that are going to lead to great social and environmental outcomes. Okay, so we've talked about reforming finance and how we use that to pay for a fairer world. Uh, one of my other favourite areas of exploration is, is around land and cities. Now, when we think about the sort of core assumptions, that deep code that, we go, that go unquestioned in Australia, discussions about land and land value are pretty high up there. I mean starting with the fact that we are all on Aboriginal land and that we haven't had a process of treaty and we haven't had a process of truth-telling around that land. But building on that, there is this unquestioned set of assumptions about owners and mum and dad investors and this idea that investing in land is the safest bet there is. Well, just last year, a lot of people learned that being a mum and dad investor and relying for your, your super or your retirement funding on that rental property isn't actually the safest bet there is. There are better ways for us to deal with land and provide housing that centre people and led to, lead to more pro-social outcomes. 
so there are, whole, there are a lot of models that we can look at from all over the world and a lot of creative industries models that we can learn from. So this is a model actually from Switzerland um, around a cooperative uh, use of the building, but that's centred on top of a community land trust use of the land. So the idea here is that you can build the building and run the organisation without having to own the land. And the land is actually owned in trust, so it's made affordable in perpetuity for either creative or social or community uses. This is a model that works really well in so many different parts of the world and I'm trying to get this to start off in Sydney as well. Uh, this is uh, the, the other thing that we have to do is question this idea of highest and best use. When we see development in our cities, people talk about this idea of highest and best use and invariably it's the use that's going to extract the biggest payout, payday for uh, a property developer or an investor and it's most likely to be a two bedroom, two bathroom apartment building block, right? whether or not that actually serves the needs of that community and whether or not that actually is the kind of housing or use that is useful in that community. So what if we actually questioned those assumptions about highest and best use? This is a map, uh, you know, we were just talking earlier about how house prices just go up and up and up. Well, they don't go up because of any particular innovation or creativity on the part of the landowner. They go up because landowners are extracting the productive capacity, the social efforts, the, great, the, the value of the great barista, the value of the great bar down the road, and they're turning it into land value. And where I live, it goes up about 5% every year, right? So what if we could take some of that and, and reinvest it in the local economy and use it to pay for some of the ends and the, and the needs that the market won't provide for. Things like affordable housing, social housing, public space and parkland, creatively productive space, places to put your new business or your community organisation. There's a great model that we can look at uh, from the UK actually, and it's an idea called the Network of City Endowments. Basically, what this model says is if uh, you have an uplift in property values, let's say your three-storey building is uh, given planning approval to become a 10-storey building, well then, three floors worth of that value is actually owed back to the local community and should be taken and put into a trust, the value of that put into a trust, that can then be locally decided and determined how it can, that money should be spent in the local economy. And that could be, as I said, providing housing, providing space, or even providing grants to organisations that provide the social infrastructure that enable that value uplift to be realised. You know, and these things can be done. I mean, you know, as Andrew said, like, these are at work in different parts of the world, but we have such a paucity of policy options to choose from in Australia that I think we just need to put some of these ideas into circulation and then we actually need to reclaim and refocus the social decision-making tool that is politics to get those outcomes. And look, that's why I got involved in politics, not because it's uh, that much fun, I have to tell you, um, you know, I come from a creative sector background and I'd never really thought that I would be up here talking about land value and procurement and those sorts of things. But I realised that the only way that we get change is when we stand up and we have people who aren't the usual suspects 
getting up and saying, do you know what, there's a different way that things could be done. And we need a lot more people like you in politics. We need a lot more people from the community sector who've had that life experience. We need people from diverse backgrounds in politics because the lack of imagination in the room comes from a lack of diversity in the room, right? So, so yeah, so, so now I'm all about procurement, I have to tell you. That's my next story. Uh, there's this fantastic model which is uh, called community wealth building. Has anyone heard about community wealth building? Yep. So basically the idea of community wealth building is about keeping money circulating in the local economy. And there's a whole bunch of great organisations all over the world who do this. Um, there's Claire's in the UK, um, there's, um, there's a, a model called the Cleveland model in, um, in the US. Uh, and, and I'm working on, I've got the City of Sydney to adopt a community wealth building approach in the City of Sydney. Because at the City of Sydney, we spend $500 million a year on services and goods in our local economy. 54% of it is spent locally. I want to see that percentage increase, but I also want to see that money being spent with social enterprises, with community organisations, with cooperatives, with a diversity of business models that distribute wealth, pre-distribute wealth, back into the community in more constructive ways. There's this town... Gone. There's this town um, in the in the north of England, um, which is called Preston. It's a it's a town of about four hundred thousand people. They really got kicked, uh, you know, during the Thatcher years, and then they got kicked again after the GFC. So you know, with austerity in the UK, the government basically bailed out the financial sector and then just kicked local communities and the community sector. And Preston found that its, uh, its, its grants from the central government were cut by 50% in 2011. And they were like, well, what are we going to do? Our community is in more need than ever before and we have less money to do anything with. So what they decided to do was to interrogate their own spend and to set their own standards about only working with businesses and organisations that would pay a minimum wage. The banks had evaporated from the high street, so they encouraged and supported a mutual society to come and set up in their town. And they really made sure that their own spend would go back into their local economy. And not only that, they got the universities and the hospitals and all of these other anchor institutions to do that work with them. And that work has resulted in all of this extra economic activity staying in the local economy and going to real businesses, not businesses that are located in tiny islands offshore, but businesses that have local roots and are locally accountable. And this is, oh, it's gone, but there was a market there that actually the, uh, the Preston City Council uh, have built that is all about showcasing and connecting people with local businesses. So why I point to this in, our, in my politics section is because I think in order to give people some confidence in politics and get people to, to be less disillusioned with politics, we have to actually prove that politics can have a positive impact in people's lives. Because I think it's absolutely true and, and justified that people have a trust deficit in politics and politicians when there's been no tangible benefit in their lives. And we have to demonstrate the lived benefit of politics that actually works for people. The other thing I'm really excited about is a, a process called deliberative democracy. Uh, and this is about being active citizens in our communities. This is something that we did in late 2019 at the City of Sydney. It was a citizen's jury. We sent out 10,000 letters uh, around the city. We got back a whole bunch of responses. 
And then we selected and we worked with an organisation called the New Democracy Foundation who did all this work. We, through a process called sortition, we selected a people who were demographically representative of the city by age, gender, location, education, wealth status, all of those sorts of things. This group of 50 Sydney ciders were then given access to experts. They were given 2,500 ideas that we'd sourced from the local communities, a whole bunch of info. And then we said to them, you set the priorities, you tell us what matters. And they came back with a document that just gives me goosebumps every time I think about it. Because even though we're pretty progressive, we're really focused on climate action. We were the first uh, local, well, first government in Australia to be 100% climate neutral. We are um, now powered 100% by renewable energy. You know, we've got a really strong social focus. Despite all of that, they were way more ambitious than us. They told us that they didn't just want sustainability, they want a regenerative economy. They want an economy that gives back more than it takes, a city that cleans the air and water. They told us that we had to centre truth-telling and First Nations justice at the beginning of everything. They told us they wanted culture and nightlife at the core of everything. They looked very different to the people I normally hear from in my inbox, I have to tell you. Uh, and that's because this group is more representative of Australia and Australians. Because I have to tell you, the people who stand for election and the people who tell politicians what they want are actually older, richer and wider than most Australians. And that's on all of us, right? We all have to be active citizens and stand up and argue and be specific about the kind of future we want. And we have to make sure that the people we elect to represent us are actually acting in our interests. So, look, I think uh, that this process was fabulous, but there is an even bigger version of this process which I want to leave you with. Um, and this is a, a process that took place in France last year, right? Who's heard about this, the Citizens' Convention on Climate? Yeah. Okay, Emmanuel Macron, not a political radical by anyone's stretch of the imagination, right? He was confronted by the Yellow Vest movement, um, which was basically a social movement that arose when people thought that the environmental uh, taxes or kind of a, a carbon tax was having a disproportionate impact on people with lower incomes, people who needed to drive. Um, and so they put on their yellow vests that they have to carry inside their car and they stormed the streets. And Macron said, I don't know what to do with this. Here you go, you guys decide the climate policy. And they did. 150 French citizens aged 16 to 80 were selected at random by text message, actually, this time. And they were entrusted with writing France's climate policy. And they were told that they had to reduce France's climate emissions by 40%. Uh, and so they sat down during the pandemic over the course of nine months, and they did. And they drafted 149 hugely ambitious recommendations that were then presented to French Parliament and Macron agreed to present 146 of those in one omnibus bill to French Parliament. Now, those, those uh, policy ideas were incredible. They were uh, about funding the retrofitting of every building in France for energy efficiency and for creating green jobs of the future. They were about banning short-term air travel, uh, sorry, short-distance air travel, um, where the same route was served by a train line. And that just happened. That just happened, right? So, and the other thing that they did was that they demanded that France change the constitution so that the first article of the constitution enshrines the crime of ecocide and a requirement that the French government protect biodiversity and the natural environment. 
that's what citizens do. That's how brave and courageous and generous and far-sighted citizens are. So our job as citizens is to make our politicians put citizens in charge. And there are systems that we have and places we can learn from all over the world that do this. So yes, politics is totally screwed in Australia right now. We are choosing from totally awful options. But we are better. We are more generous and more courageous than that. But you know what we have got? We've got this thing called deferral syndrome in Australia, where we kind of go, I elected that guy, so he's going to do it for me. He's probably not going to do it for you. And we all actually have to step up and model the future and demand the future that we could have. And we have to draw from a greater range of resources and examples in order to demand that future that we actually want to live in. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit ourcommunity.com.au forward slash CIC.